You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Welcome to the Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. And this week, we're joined by David Spain on Australia's oldest intentional community, Tuntable Falls. Uh, yeah, they've been around, uh, leading the way uh, for nearly 50 years now, based in the uh, the hills uh, of Nimbin. So uh, we're sitting on yet another glorious balcony on this All the Good Things uh, journey. We're taking around Australia. If you want to check uh, some of the places we've visited, go to allthegoodthingsjourney.com to see uh, me and my young family uh, enjoy the spoils of uh, this beautiful country. And David... Uh, as we look out over this land, we're surrounded by uh, all sorts of productive vegetation. Citrus uh, dominates the landscape. Uh, what percentage of, of your weekly food budget uh, is subsistence-based? We'd grow half our food, virtually all the vegetables and fruit. Got about 600 fruit trees and large vegetable garden it's shared between three families it's like a dream come true i've got both my sons in the houses next door very fertile landscape uh, volcanic origin well watered uh, high rainfall next to the mountainous rainforest so it's it's quite easy to to grow many things here although the excessive rain does set back some fruit citrus tend to hate it and you do have yeah some quite some challenges with the bush turkeys and the rats and so forth so you've got all sorts of contraptions set up here to defend your bounty yes there's a lot of predators for instance to grow carrots we we use old bathtubs that you get at the tip dump for ten dollars each fill them with fertile soil and put a bit of vermin mesh on top so the carrots actually grow inside the baths and come through the vermin mesh above them and the rats can't burrow in to eat them. Same with beetroot. Bananas, we've got to bag each bunch separately, not just in the traditional plastic sleeve, but also in a, in a wire envelope. Well, the turkeys will fly down out of the mountain and decimate the bunch in no time. And you were telling us last night, even corn, you have to uh, protect them as well. Yes, there's lots of antichinus, which is a native rodent. They'll climb the corn stalk and actually eat the cob, and birds will attack them too. Uh, so when the cobs are just juvenile, we, we slip a, a plastic lolly water bottle over the cob, cut a, a relatively small hole in the bottom rather than slice the whole bottom off, and leave the top open so the air can get out where the cat goes. And this way the cob swells and grows inside the plastic water bottle and, and no predators can attack them. Wow, and you've, you've already got some growing. Here we are uh, late uh, July and, and you're ready to put your first uh, tranche of, of corn into the ground pretty soon. Yes, yeah, so for the last five years I've been growing corn seed placed an inch apart in foam boxes in a brick cell with a sheet of glass on top. So you plant them at uh, nearing full moon each July, which means a month later in August you've got seedlings that can be planted out and uh, they'll take off without any frost after that. 
Wow, that's incredible. But uh, so you spend, you know, the weekends and an hour each day sort of thing uh, maintaining the garden and uh, it's quite an extensive array here. You must have, you know, here I am thinking, um, you know, eight or nine compost piles is pretty impressive on my block in Braybrook, but you must have upwards of 25 to 30 compost bins on the go producing uh, all sorts of soil and and harnessing uh, the energy behind so much green waste uh, for greater use. Yes, the, the, the main application of the compost bins is to keep evil weed seeds out of the system and to put any rotting fruit that falls in there to minimise pe- uh, bacteria and pests uh, growing on it. Uh, so so the compost bins you see are really just a secondary adjunct to, to control those aspects. Any uh, standard green waste we in the orchard we put in what we call corrals, which are just... Well, little little wire yards, maybe maybe a metre, a metre and a half in diameter on tomato stakes around the outside and then pig, pig wire. So we heap it all in there, which makes it easier to, to brush cut the remainder of the orchard. For our, for our real vegetable garden uh, compost, it's important to avoid weed seeds. There's just so many weeds in this locality. Uh, so we make our own uh, collecting... Uh, horse manure and stable waste from racecourse, mixing that with uh, cracker dust and, and other weed-free materials uh, so that the resulting compost has no weed seed in it at all. And because, because we use sugarcane mulch, again, that's a form of mulch that has no weed seeds in it and breaks down quite quickly. So those two streams of compost make a very good addition to the vegetable garden soil. And even with uh, uh, compact compost bins filled right to the brim, there's some talk that when you do have a, a serious volume there that it creates a heat mass that destroys the weed seed, you're saying that that's not as uh, successful as you'd like. Oh no, I think that's quite true, but you need to add add the, uh, the heat making ingredients, which is basically rotting vegetation but I just don't have the time to necessarily focus on the, on that form of compost making. Mm, yeah sure because you're a, a busy solicitor running Nimbin Law here working on uh, uh, civil cases and uh, uh, tell us about some of the evolutions you've seen in this locality here in Nimbin over time. You were discussing with me the other day about uh, how some 50% of your work is property related. Yes listeners we're switching from the micro back to our macro overview and uh, our passion for fair and efficient use of land. So David in terms of the majority of work you do in the property space what would it be related to? The firm does just the same as most solicitors firms a lot of conveyancing wills and estates and standard stuff like that but we do tend to specialise in multiple occupancies which is intentional communities. In New South Wales there is still a, a a unique town planning code called SEP 15, State Environmental Planning Policy Number 15, which requires all councils, at least rural councils, to enable the deliberate formation of intentional communities on second grade agricultural land. They have to be a certain size and they have to put in a development application and cater for certain criteria such as 
electricity and roading, water and bushfires. But as a result, uh, th throughout this locality of uh, Lismore City Council, Tweed Shire Council, Kyogo Shire Council, over to the coast at, at Byron and Bangalore, um, there are many hundreds of intentional communities. Usually they're quite small, maybe three or five households, but ours has got more like 200. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're structured as a cooperative. Uh, members derive their rights from the constitution of the cooperative. Co-op owns the land and members can acquire house sites under licence to occupy them. They don't own any land. And uh, over the last 40 years, uh, have built their own homes, usually starting from nothing, like just living in tents or sheds. And many uh, you know, proper, full, standard-sized homes have been constructed. So at Nimbut Law, we, we see a lot of different sorts of communities. Uh, the, the, the smaller ones are usually tenancies in common or company structure. Some are, some are cooperatives. And one of the interesting things I'm getting my head around is uh, this legalised loophole of multiple occupancies versus something called community title, which down in Victoria we don't have and is something uh, I'd like uh, more of our listeners to know about. Can you explain the difference between the two? In a multiple occupancy, there is only one cadastral lot and there's no internal subdivisions at all. So the, the people who come together to form that intentional community uh, do not have their own privatised cadastral lot. Uh, they can't mortgage anything. They have to share the whole property in common. That's why it is wise to have properly drafted legal rules or a, a tenancy in common deed so as to regulate how they operate together. Uh, but in community titling, there, there are uh, expressly surveyed uh, cadastral lots that are held as freehold by, the, by each separate settler. It's like strata title, but written broad across the landscape. So you'll find that these, these private cadastral lots are placed amongst common lands. You often see the same thing, I don't know about Victoria, but certainly in Queensland, where golf courses and parkland form common land, but there are residential and even commercial facilities dotted in and amongst it. So the community titling legislation came as a response to the application of the pre-existing strata title legislation to broad acre situations because there was no way in the 1970s or 80s to uh, allow private holding of patches within these intentional communities other than by uh, applying the strata legislation on a broad acre basis. Well, it wasn't very satisfactory. There are some strata title communities, Bill and Cliffs is one, but since uh, the 1990s, anyone wanting to go that way has uh, done the community title route. But I should say before finishing this that I, I see a lot of intentional communities and I can say with certainty that the communities that have the best spirit, where there's a sense of community and unison, uh, they're, and they're far more than just sand heaps of selfish little individuals. The best communities are those which are multiple occupancies, they hold the land in common, there's no cadastral lots, 
Uh, they operate on the basis of privacy and respect for each other. And preeminent amongst those that are most successful are the ones which prevent absentee landlordism by only permitting the rental of approved homes for, say, 18 months in every five years, and those which prevent speculation by capping the sale price to the value of improvements on each site. So no site holder can cash in on the underlying value of the land or on the uh, local existence of a valuable community. They can only get what they put in, materials and labour on the site. And that's how it should be, shouldn't it? No one profiteering off the value of location, location. And uh, if there is a way to share that value, it should go back to that intentional community itself. But there's a whole pile of different formulas behind this. And it's very interesting that you prefer multiple occupancy because when I first heard of community title, I thought it was a good way to uh, create some sort of reward for effort. But is there an example of community title where um, the the home owner, the home, well, we call it the trust member perhaps, uh, can own the home, but they are paying a lease fee, a land lease fee back to the intentional community. Is that possibility um, uh, in play anywhere in Australia or is it still um, stuck in my head as a theoretical possibility? I think it's only a theoretical possibility and rather a remote one for this reason that community title land is like broadacre strata title land and the individuals own their residential blocks as freehold. They pay rates on that block direct to council, they can mortgage that block, and they don't lease it in any way, such as would require them to pay rental to the body corporate. But they are, of course, subject to body corporate levies, the same as they would be in a high-rise strata. Uh, those levies are set by all the community members. Usually they're just enough to cover necessary community functions, such as interconnecting roads, waste disposal or maintenance of common buildings but the members themselves uh, would be very reluctant to see those payments uh, being more than they have to be for those essential services. Mm, and that's how it should be, shouldn't it? Uh, uh, keeping uh, the cost of uh, occupancy at a minimum, but uh, with some form of uh, uh, land lease payment, it does keep the land price low. But you're saying that within many of these intentional communities, there are uh, articles of intent within the constitution that ensure that you cannot sell the land at a profit, um, and how is a decision made on who that site is then sold to? The land under the site cannot be sold. No, no site holder owns the land. They merely have a licence to occupy it. That licence is not a separate document. It's part, just part of the one constitution of the cooperative. So having been granted permission to, to reside on the site under licence, the members at liberty to build their own house and the like, if after some time they want to move on or sell their improvements, usually they find a buyer. If they can't, then we've got one of our nine coordinators is the housing coordinator. Um, that's the person who keeps an eye out for houses that are for sale and would-be buyers for them and liaises with the council about planning issues. So eventually a, a buyer will turn up and at that stage the seller of the house 
pays the, the valuation fee. Now, the cooperative itself arranges the valuation. Uh, we used to use land valuables, but, but now we just use registered builders who've lived in the locality and have a much better idea on con materials and construction costs. So the registered builder uh, can assess the current market value at depreciated rates of the improvements on site and the seller of the house cannot sell at above that amount. Wow, that's quite something. Is that because of a, a paucity of land valuers in the area or how did that evolve? Because I haven't heard of that before, a builder giving a valuation of uh, a home's value. We, we found that the registered land valuers just didn't get it. They didn't have the mindset that they were able to dissociate the value of the improvements from the value of the land and the informing value of the, of the local community itself. Really? That's a, an indictment on the valuation industry, isn't it? It's something that some people, uh, when they first get involved in this story, often there's uh, material you can read online about the difficulty of separating the value of the land from the the house. But we say, look, uh, quite often there are vacant land sales in the area that you can look at and, and see that that is uh, a, a fair indication of what your site would be worth on a per square metre basis. Well, even vacant uh, pieces of land have their value informed by the presence of a surrounding community and community services, infrastructure, roads, schools, libraries and the like. Uh, the, the way we see it, the, the, the settler here hasn't really contributed to the existence of any of that and shouldn't get a windfall profit from being there. All they have really brought in onto their site is the materials and labour that they've put there, the, you know, the, the timber and the roofing iron and the, and the fruit trees. And, and these things you do have, have a reasonable value that can be assessed by looking at materials and construction schedules and depreciation rates. And in practical terms, like a registered builder who's been working in the locality for several decades has got a far better idea as to the real market cost of these things than a, than a registered land valuer. So you get both a cheaper and a better result going that way. Mm -hmm. So going back to multiple oc occupancy as the preferred medium, uh, but switching hats and looking at it from the council perspective, I spoke uh, recently to the mayor of Byron Bay and uh, he said, look, MOs are fantastic, but from a council perspective, uh, we, we end up having more people living on one block of land and they still pay the same amount of rates, uh, but we've now got 20 vehicles instead of two driving on our roads. We've got extra waste collection needed, all of these issues. So how, what's the workaround there for councils to make it work for government? This is, this is definitely a problem from the council point of view that it's much more rewarding for their rate income to have a community title than a multiple occupancy. And of course the cons conservative government uh, in New South Wales doesn't particularly like multiple occupancies. They probably don't get many voters from them. And now, unfortunately, SEP 15 is being removed from the statute books. So it's going to cease to be possible to form multiple occupancy communities unless a council deliberately of its own initiative uh, maintains this planning policy under their town plan, uh, which is uh, yeah, 
not only the, the lost revenue for having separate cadastral lots, but it's also quite a difficult thing bureaucratically for them to administer the DA process. Uh, I did hear from lawyer Roth Wall, though, that that's limited to a number of shires down around near Sydney and still up here in northern New South Wales. They're going to be able to have multiple occupancy. Well, that will only because the councils voluntarily maintain that possibility under their town plan. Right. Not because they're obliged to do so under central state legislation. Uh Uh-huh. So back to the question then, councils being able to deliver the same level of service when these multiple occupancies only pay one rating bill. Yeah, look, I think if there was cooperation between the intentional communities and the council, then some of these problems could be addressed, such as by the communities assisting with the collection and presentation of the rubbish or assisting with the maintenance of the roads. God, that would be welcome because the cost of uh, road maintenance has just gone through the roof as uh, we've now hit 30-plus years of privatisations that John Hollands and and so forth of the world are absolutely cleaning up in terms of their road maintenance uh, and highway development costs. You wonder how much it would cost to buy a a steamroller and an asphalt truck and a couple of other things and have them on standby uh, have to be a darn sight cheaper than a million dollars a meter for some of these highways we're getting these days but uh, yeah David uh, so where do you think the future of intentional communities you know how is it going to play out in the future are they going to keep slowly growing or is it going to be something that as this lockdown generations now of people uh, are going to recognise as a, a system to um, to sidestep the incredible mortgage costs and, and see more, uh, if you like, community land trusts out there um, in the marketplace? Well, I have preferred intentional communities to community land trusts because on an intentional community, the settlers actually own and administer their own land and there's no financier or trustee involved. Uh, with a community land trust, you're likely to have both uh, having to make repayments to a financier and have some trustee looking over your shoulder and regulating how the community operates itself. But having said that, it, it, it is becoming increasingly difficult for intentional communities to form, uh, not only because of the recent looming loss of uh, the enabling legislation, but because of the high price of land. This is the greatest impediment. Uh, In a way, another factor is uh, that would-be settlers can these days easily depend on the welfare state. Like when we started off in the 1970s, there there was virtually no welfare state. You just couldn't get unemployment benefits, for instance. People had to cooperate and look after themselves. But getting back to your question, the intentional community scene is just one player in in a vast range of concerns about the high price of land. Uh, which, which of course doesn't properly belong to the landowner. Um, the landowner gets richer in his sleep. The high price of land is is enabled by all the surrounding uh, community infrastructure and the presence of facilities like railway stations or libraries or schools. So the the high price of land is is keeping uh, your whole whole uh, younger generations out of home ownership. It's it's deming them to uh, being tenants or or to have no home, 
both of which problems could be addressed if land prices were cheaper and especially in an intentional community context. So for, for many reasons, it's important that really that the price of land should be reduced to nil and, and land sites should exchange simply for the value of improvements on the sites. You know, having a land price is, is a theft from the creator who gave us the land and it's a theft from the, the depressed lower income earners who are being forced to pay rental to occupy it. They've got to live in somewhere. And further, it's a, it's a theft from future generations uh, who, who are seeing uh, government debt and the like build infrastructure and so on that re rebounds to the benefit of existing site owners, owners who pocket the, 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 the price increases. And yet it's the future generations who are going to have to service and repay this debt. So the high price of land's the enemy. It certainly is. Well, David, it's great to see a living example here of a community who've uh, uh, prospered for over 45 years now. So uh, fantastic work, and I look forward to hearing about the 50-year celebration in years to come. It's been an absolute delight to stay here and see your beautiful community hall, so many well-manicured uh, properties here and homes just tucked away subtly in the hills. It, it seems like uh, a beautiful place to to spend uh, life on Earth. So thanks very much for joining us here on The Renegade Economist. Good. Thanks, Carl. And that was David Spain from the Site Revenue Society of Queensland giving insights on life on an intentional community. Once upon a time, uh, it was akin to a commune, but uh, has grown into a thriving, healthy, financially secure community with uh, quite some savings in the bank. So uh, great to hear that uh, for essentially a, a piece of land, uh, two or 300 uh, acres uh, big. They bought it for $100,000 in 1970s. It cost $200 to become a member. You got to build your own home. And from that, uh, David now has his two sons uh, living in, in separate houses with their partners uh, not far away. So uh, sounds like the way to be, doesn't it? And uh, it's been an interesting few weeks here on The Renegade Economist where we've gone uh, from public banking uh, in uh, Malambimbi to uh, uh, architecture and um, the need for some vision, not to be dominated by regulation with John Sparks. We had Kelvin Daly talking about his new community land trust and uh, some of the exciting aspects he's uh, bringing into line there. And then we had Colin Cook last week. Uh, really uh, such a simple thing to um, to grasp, but uh, had bringing to light the fact that the enclosures of the commons in the UK where uh, the common lands where people could graze their sheep or harvest uh, some extra crops beyond their own lands uh, was was enclosed it became harder for people to look after themselves and from that uh, uh, led to higher crime levels thus um, overcrowding jails that uh, soon became uh, our forebears who came to Australia and of course enclosed the land here stole it from the Aboriginals and uh, here we are living in these twisted times still if you ask me struggling to find our Australian identity 
All right, my name is Carl Fitzgerald. I look forward to reporting in to you next week uh, from up Brisbane Way. So thanks very much for uh, your support. Thanks for sharing the show with your networks, your Facebooks, all those sort of things. I do appreciate the feedback. So uh, pop us a, a question, renegades at earthsharing.org.au. If you've got a community, uh, uh, an intellect that you think I must meet as we travel around Australia, please send uh, your, your thoughts our way.